But we have a lot to get into this morning, and so let's jump in. I just, uh, last week we introduced this new series, Believe, by considering this important question if you were here last week. Why believe? That was the question last week. Why believe? Why a series on belief? Why, why believe? And the, the, what we came away with was that what we believe influences how we live and who we become. And so kind of the three primary movements of this series, think, act, be, they're all related. This is not just a, a series on what we believe, but a, a belief that impacts how we live and who we become. And we'll get there. But today, we consider the foundational truth. We really are looking at beliefs this first 10 weeks. And this key foundational truth belief around, this is our question, who is God? Who is God is kind of the question for chapter one in this series. Uh, And we're going to be taking on this crucial question that encompasses major studies of Christian doctrine. So you could take semesters of theological education, and we're going to just cover it in 20 minutes. Uh, But on Christology, the study of the Holy Spirit, which is pneumatology, the Trinity, all of these things, we're going to, who is God? And it's a journey through the scriptures to explore this question. We're going to get into some of those texts, but this morning we're going to ground ourselves in one of the most central texts in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, which is referred to as the Shema. And the Shema, which is simply Hebrew for hear hear or listen, is is this core prayer of the Hebrew people found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. And we're going to read that this morning. And if you're willing, if you're able, I invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me as we pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for these words. These words found in your word. Words that, Lord, teach us who you are. That speak into who you've called us to be. Words that point us ultimately to Jesus. And Lord God, as we explore this question of of who are you, who is God, Spirit, we pray that you would speak. Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds and so that we would hear from you and in hearing from you that your Spirit would begin and continue to transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ who is our Lord and our Savior. It's in his name that we pray all these things and God's people say, amen, amen. Who is God? Who is God? That's a, that's a big question, amen? It's an important question. In fact, uh, mid-century pastor, author, theologian, A.W. Tozer famously wrote in 1961 these words. He writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image 
of God. Now, admittedly, Tozer wrote this quote during a time when belief in God was, was kind of assumed. It was kind of a, a given. He wrote it in 1961. And back in the 50s and 60, 60s, uh, it was, I mean, most people probably did believe in God. And so it was a pretty good assumption. Fast forward to today, and we might need to say this same quote just a little bit differently. And I think Tim Keller uh, does a brilliant job translating the basic idea of this quote to our increasingly secular society. Tim Keller writes these words in his book, Center Church. Everyone, he writes, has to live for something. And if that something is not God, then we're driven by that thing we live for by overwork to achieve it, by inordinate fear if it is threatened, deep anger if it's being blocked, or inconsolable despair if it is lost. See, what we think, what we believe about God, or if we don't believe about God, whatever that, 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 that central idea or that motivating passion in our lives that's replaced God as our center, that thing we worship, or another way of putting it, that thing that we live for will drive and direct our lives in powerful ways. So what we think about God, or what is that motivating force in our lives, is, if not the, one of the most important things about us. This morning, our hope is to show how the biblical understanding of God is both unique and beautiful. And when believed and embraced, it has the potential to lead to something just as unique and just as beautiful in the life of the Christ follower. So this morning, let's begin with our passage this morning, the Shabbat, found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It is, it was, and it is, continues to be a core creed and prayer of the Judeo-Christian faith, answering this question, who is God? The answer being, the Lord. The prayer, the Shema, this was the prayer of the Jewish people. It was a prayer that, that Jewish people would recite uh, in the morning and in the evening, just as the, pra- the prayer itself commands people to do from a very early on, for an early age. And so it's, it's safe to assume that this would have been a prayer, uh, these would have been words that Jesus would have recited daily when he woke up, before he went to bed, from a very early age. Here's the first line of the prayer. Hear, or Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, it goes something like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Do you want to say that with me? (laughs) Nope, okay, we won't. (laughs) This first line was and remains the central confession of the Jewish faith. Who is God? Well, the Lord is God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's only one God, and his name is the Lord. Now let's unpack this this statement uh, some, this central confession, this creed. God in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim is, is really the generic term for, for God in the, ancient, uh, con, in, in the ancient world. And so any contemporary God in the ancient world, uh, like Baal or Asherah, Baal was an Elohim or Asherah was an Elohim. So when Deuteronomy says our God, Scripture is referring to the one true God. Scripture is saying our God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who we're referring to when we say Elohim in the Shema. Further, when the Hebrew Bible in English has the Lord, and notice the Lord is is all capital letters, 
that's, that's, that's telling us something distinct than if the Lord is, is spelled with lowercase letters. When the Lord in the Old Testament uses all capital letters, it's referring not to a generic title, the Lord or master or something, but the Hebrew word for the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, whenever you see the Lord in all capitals, it's referring to Yahweh. Now it's important to note that in the Hebrew, the name Yahweh is so so holy, you do not utter the name of the Lord. And so when we say Shema Israel Adonai, Adonai, we don't say Yahweh because you don't even utter the name of Yahweh. You say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. In fact, you don't say you don't say you don't say Yahweh. You say Adonai, or you even say Hashem. Hashem is another way of referring to God. Hashem literally just means the name because you don't say the name. You just say Hashem. Anyway, the Lord in all caps, that's what it means. And this is the name God first reveals to Moses in Exodus 3 when God appears to Moses in a burning bush. We read this. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses saying, well, what's your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the meaning of Yahweh. It means I am who I am. This is the name God uses to reveal his character to Moses later on in Exodus 34, verses 5 and following. We read this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud there on Mount Sinai and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So this question of of who is God, a, a summary of the Old Testament scriptures would say, well, the scriptures reveal that God is Yahweh, right? A name that literally means I am who I am or I am who I will be. A name, Yahweh, that's derived from the Hebrew verb to be, the existing one. God just is Yahweh, the one true God, who then reveals his character to Moses later in Exodus as the God who of compassion, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And the Shema tells us that this Yahweh, the Lord, is one. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. There is one. Central confession of the Jewish and Christian faith. The Lord is one. Now fast forward, Jesus, the Son of God, enters this world. And Jesus comes on the scene and turns all of people's paradigms upside down in a way that actually helps them begin to see and understand everything that came before more clearly. And that's important to to, to make a distinction there because Jesus' life, all of a sudden people are putting together like, wait, Jesus is Lord. The Lord is one, but, but all of a sudden, Jesus is Lord. That's the central confession of the Christian faith, uh, that Jesus is Lord. During Jesus' ministry, his own words and actions forced people to wonder who he was. Is, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he something more? And Peter's confession here in Matthew 16 captures some of that. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Because as people experienced Jesus, as his disciples listened to Jesus, Jesus was more than a prophet. He, he healed people. He spoke with authority. Not only did Jesus speak with authority over the, the law, right, in terms of the law, but, but Jesus also spoke with authority over sin. 
Jesus would forgive people. Jesus spoke with authority even over the created world. Remember this story of Jesus in this boat in the Sea of Galilee and there's this, this, the, the, the waves are crashing and he simply says, peace, be still. He speaks with authority over creation. The chaotic waters, right? Jesus did things that only God had authority to do and say and yet the central confession of the faith is that the Lord is one. There's one God. And the thought that any human being could be God would have just been, would, would have been unfathomable. The people didn't have categories for that. That would be blasphemy. But here's the thing. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks that, that he didn't come to, to change the law or contradict the law. He came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, verses 17 and following. He, he says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's referring to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In the central prayer of the Shema, Jesus affirms the Shema, the central confession of the Jewish faith. When he's asked by a, by a teacher of the law, which is the most important commandment? This is Jesus' answer. The most important one Jesus answered from Mark 12 is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. In Matthew's account, he continues, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all the law and all of the prophets, all of the scriptures hang on these two commandments. We see that Jesus himself fully accepts the central claim of God's oneness, right? He affirms the Shema, the central confession that, that hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And yet, he adds a new revelation that challenges our understanding of, of what does it mean that God is one? He begins to broaden our understanding of what is oneness. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus leans into this meaning of the divine name Yahweh, I am, when he says these words in John 8. He says, very, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That's referring to the divine name of God. Then in John 10, being even more explicit, he, he proclaims this, I, referring to himself, Jesus and the Father are one. Now in both instances, John will continue to record that Jesus almost gets stoned for blasphemy after he says this because those statements are blasphemous unless they're true. And they're true. Jesus infers he is Yahweh. He then explicitly claims he is one with the Father. The Lord's oneness, what Jesus is saying, that this truth that the Lord is one somehow and mysteriously includes Jesus. John, at the beginning of his gospel, gets even more explicit, not mincing words when John writes to open the gospel of John, writing this, in the beginning was the word referring to Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The answer to this question, who is God, is forever changed through Jesus Christ. After Jesus' life ministry teaching ultimately his death and resurrection, somehow followers of Jesus are realizing that, this, this G, that the Lord is one. Somehow Jesus is part of the equation. But there's more. 
There's revelation of the Holy Spirit. There's this revelation of the Holy Spirit as a distinct person that adds some, that requires some reframing as well. Not only is, is Yahweh the, the Lord, is the God is God is Lord, the Father's Lord, Jesus is Lord, and the scriptures reveal that the Holy Spirit is Lord. As with the theology around Jesus' identity, it's important to remember, we learned this last year, right? That the scriptures are not written as a theology textbook, right? It's not written as a systematic theology textbook, but primarily as a story of God's work in this world. Theology is then later developed to try to explain and understand what early apostles saw and experienced and have a hard time putting human language on. But the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And before that, Jesus speaks of the Spirit multiple times, promising that the Spirit would come at multiple points in his ministry. What's important to note is this. The Spirit is always spoken of as a distinct person. When Jesus speaks of the Spirit, he's speaking of a distinct person uh, of the Trinity, as we'll get to in a little bit, who works in union with the Father and the Son. I think the the best summation of all this is Jesus' final dialogue with his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16, after he's going to leave them and be arrested. Uh, After these words, he will be arrested. Uh, But let me just walk through a couple of these from John 14, 15, and 16. First, uh, these words. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says this, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything everything I have said to you. Notice the Spirit is, is functioning as a distinct person of the Trinity. Chapter 15, Jesus continues, when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Again, notice how the Spirit is referred to as a distinct person. And then finally, chapter 16 I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The spirit, being referred to as a distinct person, but notice this, always in union with the Father and the Son. Take a deep breath. Okay. Again, the answer to this question, who is God, must be reexamined when by the giving at the giving of the Holy Spirit, who is also God, who is Lord, who is also Lord, right? How do followers of Jesus reconcile this central claim that the Lord is one, the oneness of God, and this new revelation that that Jesus is Lord and the Holy Spirit is Lord? How do we how do we reconcile these things? God's oneness and yet the threeness of these three persons. And this is what leads the early church with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the doctrine of the Trinity. Can we say Trinity together? Trinity, Trinity. Now disclaimer, the early church wrestled with how to understand the tension revealed in scripture between the oneness of God and the threeness of persons. It took a couple hundred years to get to the Council of Nicaea when they could say, we got it. We're still trying to get it fully, right? There's some mystery in this. 
Um, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to be able to land this one in the next few minutes. But the good news is we can lean into those who've gone before us and the Spirit's work. That Christians have belie- been believing God three and one for 2,000 years. This is divinely inspired and we lean into the Spirit, into the tradition of the church on this doctrine. But the most beautiful picture, I think, in Scripture uh, of the Trinity is found in Jesus' baptism. Uh, Notice here that Jesus is baptized early on. It's kind of the coronation moment of his ministry. And all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are present in this one glorious moment. Here's Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In this coronation of Jesus' earthly ministry, we have all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit present. Jesus, the Son, being baptized. The Holy Spirit descending upon him in bodily form as a dove. And then the Father's audible voice resounding from heaven. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity right there in a couple verses. And in this one scene from history, three descriptive marks of the Trinity are present. And I just want to quickly talk about these because I find them helpful. Unity, equality, distinction. Three words that give boundaries to the relationship of the Godhead, the Trinity. Three words that, that won't allow us to totally understand it in completion, but give some boundaries. And personally, I find these to be helpful. A helpful way to begin to wrestle with this theological concept. Again, not to fully grasp the infinite whiz, mysterious nature of God, but to find some guide, some guardrails and some boundaries. Because when one of these three um, is missing, as we think about the Trinity, then, then we're beyond what Scripture reveals. Let's talk about them just briefly. Unity. That, that the Father, the Son, the Spirit are one in essence. Right? Equality. That the Father, the Son, the Spirit are equal in glory. And distinction, right? That the Father, Son, Spirit are, are distinct persons. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. Unity. What we mean by unity is that there is one God, right? Not three. The Father, the Spirit, the, the Son, they're one. And, and if, and if this, this descriptive uh, part of the Trinity is lost, if we lose unity, then, we, we, then the, the temptation is we start to kind of fall off into not monotheism, right? Three gods, Right? So the, the unity is important. There, there, it's one God so that we, we remain with monotheism, not tritheism. Equality. This is an important one. There's no hierarchy within the Trinity. Right? The, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're, they're equal. The Father's not greater than the Son. The Son's not greater than the Spirit. And if we start to believe that, then we're falling into some ancient heresies of subordinationism, right? Jesus is begotten, not made. The Son, the Spirit are co-eternal with the Father, equality, right? And then the final one, distinct. There's three forms, not three forms of one God, right? It's not that there's one God that kind of reveals God's self in three different ways at, three diff- at different times. No, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're three distinct persons. And if we lose the distinction piece, we fall into another heresy of of modalism, okay? Now we're in the weeds a little bit, okay? But think of it this way. I I, kind of think of it, when I was in seminary, this is the image that I had. Like, imagine like uh, a server at a restaurant holding the the, the serving platter. What do you call that? 
Trey, thank you. That's not a hard word to figure out, but Trey. Thank you, Joel. Trey. But imagine if the tray is shaped as a triangle, okay? And on each part of the, of the tray, the triangular tray, are these three different descriptive marks. Unity, equality, distinction. If we lose one of those marks, what's going to happen to the tray? It's going to tip over. If, if one of those marks is a little, we're, we're de-emphasizing, right? So there's something about balancing that creates some of the boundaries in the Trinity tray. I, we're not going to, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. But I don't know, for me, that, that kind of helped. Like these three characteristics of the Trinity are important to understand kind of the boundaries, the guardrails, uh, how we understand this, this mystery, this, this three-in-one mystery of the Trinity. On another note, you know, if you miss one of those, you fall into heresy. Back in the early ages of the church, uh, people would be killed for heresies. And I would say that killing someone for a heresy is its own degree of heresy. Okay, we'll just say that. So we return to the question, who is God? Let's return to our question, who is God? Well, after 2,000 years of church history, it, church history and what the Bible reveals in Jesus Christ, God is revealed in the scriptures as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now we have a theological word, and you're like, great, we got a word, Trinity, uh, but maybe you're like me, and you're like, well, what does it matter? Like, can you tell me something a little more compelling? Why does it matter? Well, I'm glad you asked. Maybe you didn't ask. But why does it matter? Especially if our understanding of God is the most important thing about us, like A.W. Tozer, or what we believe, what's the guiding force in our life, the guiding principle, why it matters. It must matter because it's this, the most important thing about it. Why, why does it matter? Here's one word. Love. Love. Jesus reveals what was hidden, what was veiled in the Hebrew Bible, that God, the Lord at God's core, is three in one. Meaning that at God's core, God exists in relationship. A relationship defined by perfect love. Love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think actually this helps us to begin to make sense of some of the language even in the Hebrew Bible. Some of the language in, in Genesis, that Genesis 1, the second verse in Genesis, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. An understanding of the Trinity helps us understand what that means just a little deeper. Or how about this? In Genesis 1, verse 26, as God is creating Adam and Eve, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. Why is it our? Why is it plural there? An understanding of the Trinity, I think, actually helps us reveal and helps us understand what is being said at the beginning of our scriptures. Maybe more importantly, here's another question that I think the Trinity kind of helps us imagine, if you will. Begin to imagine, what was God doing before God created the heavens and the earth? What was, what was God like before the creation of the heavens and the earth? And actually, Jesus offers us a glimpse of what that was like. In John 17, verse 24, he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me before where I am and see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, God, the Lord, Yahweh, existed eternally in this mysterious triune relationship of love. This may very well explain, it might, why the Apostle John 
the apostle who lived longer than any of the other 12 apostles, the apostle John who, who walked with Jesus for three years, who followed Jesus for three years, who lived longer than any of the other apostles, described God at the end of his life in a letter that he wrote in this way. 1 John chapter 4. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And here it is, God is love. John, after a lifetime of reflecting on this important question, well, who is God? reflecting and pondering the mysteries of God, the revelation of Jesus, the giving and the, the gift of the Holy Spirit summed it all up in three simple words. God is love. It's important to note that doesn't mean we get to place our imperfect modern definitions of love on God. But rather, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit gets to define what perfect self-giving love actually is. And the word in the, in the Greek there is agape, is an unconditional self-giving love. God is this kind of perfect love. So the final question for us today is, well, what, is, what does that mean for us today as Christ followers? What's the implication for us? Well, the profound life-giving mystery of the gospel is this. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we who call ourselves followers, who, who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're, we're now invited into this divine relationship of love. Let me say that again so you don't miss it. The mystery of the gospel that through Jesus Christ, we as Christ's disciples, as followers, we are invited into this divine relationship of love. Notice how John writes in chapter 4 that we, we already read it, but let me just read it again. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. <sighs> That's incredible. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Because of God's love, grace has been extended in Jesus Christ. We've been welcomed into a relationship with Holy God by the Holy Spirit. This new reality then joins us also together in relationship, in communion with all of God's people, us in God, us in each other. And this morning, we gather around a table that signifies both of those realities in profound and beautiful ways. We partake in communion, which signifies this reality in a tangible way, that God's people partake in the bread and the cup of Jesus Christ, and in partaking, we are mysteriously, by the power of the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And the good news of the gospel, then, is that not only that, but by God's grace, we are then united, not only in Christ, but together as Christ's body, which is why we call this Holy Supper Communion. God's people communing with God, God's people communing with each other. This is the mystery of the faith that the Trinity points us toward.
join with me as, in a word of prayer as we ponder this beautiful, glorious, revealed mystery. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, this morning we, we, we covered some pretty heady things considering the Trinity. Lord God, that you are three in one. One God, three persons. Lord, as we consider things that are important, Lord, may you draw our hearts right back to the table. Because, Lord, what, what is revealed, what we know, is the good news of the gospel. That because of your great love, Lord God, you sent Jesus Christ in this world. Lord God, and Jesus, because of your great love, you, you willingly laid down your life. You bore the weight of sin and brokenness, pain and evil of this world. And was buried, it was destroyed. And you rose again, conquering death. And in this meal, Lord, we rem are reminded of the good news of the gospel. That because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross, we are forgiven and we are free. And we are now called children of God. Lord, prepare our hearts as we partake in this meal together so that the reality, the truth of the Trinity, the reality of the gospel might once again be renewed and strengthened and deepened. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.